0: All right. <coughs> Excuse me. Quick uh, recap from last week when we covered the bulk of Galatians chapter three. Uh, I made the appeal that uh, that uh, Paul is working through a problem with the churches of Galatia and that a, a distorted gospel has come in, and he's walking through different things. He's walking through a a basis for the credibility of himself, what makes him uh, the the right person to refute the things that are being said by the people who have come in as Judaizers who are distorting the gospel, defends his apostleship. And then he spends a couple of chapters defending the gospel in different different ways. Last week, I made the claim that he was doing it in a personal way and a scriptural way. So he's using the using the scriptures, meaning using the Old Testament, you know, the only scriptures that existed uh, really at the time, to make claims about how his gospel and what he taught was the truth and how what the Judaizers were teaching were a distortion. Last week, we talked about a few things. The means of justification is the same as the means for sanctification. In other words, Paul says practically, personally, it doesn't make sense for you to claim salvation one way, faith in Jesus Christ, and then claim that you're going to stay in Christ a different way, keeping of the law. That doesn't make any sense if you think about it and how you would really live your personal life. And then he spends the rest of chapter 3 talking about uh, the law, references to Abraham, and how Jesus uh, completes the law, so Jesus bears the curse of the law. The, the curse that none of us could hold because we all can't keep the law perfectly. and then how the promise was fulfilled through Christ's seed. So the promise of God is not fulfilled through the nation of Israel because and therefore we don't have to become part of the nation of Israel. The law the, the promise fulfillment from Abraham comes from Jesus, from one seed, not many. And that leaves a natural question that started last week and continues this week. If all that's true, Paul, then why did we even have the law in the first place? And throughout the class, I had a couple of loose illustrations where the law is an x-ray, it is a leak detector, it is something that displays man's sins. It's not the thing that causes man's sins, it is something that that puts it on display, uh, identifies it. And then it is a temporary delivery from man's sin to the permanent cure. It is a spare tire. It holds a function, but its function, even by design, is limited. Uh, And it is limited in in time until the fulfillment uh, of that law in in Jesus Christ. Very quickly, some of the applications that we went through. uh, I'm going to talk about that last application here a little bit more uh, today. Uh, But the idea of, of not changing horses midstream Grace isn't new. Our, our, our applications that we're going to talk about last week and leave there, um, as we go as we go forward. I'm going to talk about. Um, uh, I, I like to try to break it into three sections every class. Uh, primarily, it's a selfish reason because I've got time stamps about how far I need to get by certain points. Um, and uh, today, it's just to uh, give you a, a a little sense of it. We're going to spend. A, a little bit of time at the, uh, in the first section, very little time uh, in the middle of chapter four, and spend most of the time uh, at the back end of chapter four. So if I want to spend the most of the time at the back end of chapter four, that means I'm going to be doing a little bit of, get, let's get to the end of chapter four, all right? So if you feel that, now you know uh, what's in my brain and where it's coming from. Ready? Chapter 3, verse 26, I'm going to read Galatians 3, 26 through chapter 4, (coughs) excuse me, at verse 11. Galatians 3, 26, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you're all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to the promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is an owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the day set by his father. So also we, while we were children, were held in the bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman. Born under the law, so that we, so that he might redeem those who are under the law, that we may receive adoption as sons. Because you are sons, and God has sent forth the Spirit His Son into our hearts, crying, "Abba, Father." Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time when you did not know God, you were slaves to those who, are by nature, are no gods, but But now that you have come to know God or rather to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental thing to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I labored over you in vain. All right. Um, as with last time, I'm going to elaborate, kind of commentate on my main points uh, up here. So if you lose track of where I am, uh, just find where I'm at in one of these uh, three points, and then I'll uh, I'll open it up for some questions and for comments. Jonathan's got a mic. Uh, I've got a mic, and, and of course I encourage everybody to uh, to speak up. The end of chapter three to me is a, is a very uh, climactic point. That's why I segregated it from the rest of. The rest of chapter 3. Um, your status, one of the, one of the things that, that's a principle that we need to be mindful of. There's multiple principles of the, of the scheme of redemption throughout this book. One of the principles that we have to be remind, reminded of is our status doesn't matter uh, in faith in Jesus Christ. The distinctions that the world makes, and in particular in this context, the distinction between Jewish law and non-Jewish law obedience uh, are inconsistent with the equality that people have between, but before God. Uh, there's, there's no distinctions that can be made when it comes before standing in Christ. He references some of the natural distinctions that we make. We make distinctions by race. We make distinctions by gender. We make dis- social distinctions like slave man, free man. Um, those distinctions, while evident in the world don't mean anything when it comes to a status, <coughs> excuse me, status before God. Um, there are, um, I, I go back, if you look at first uh, couple of verses of chapter four, I'd go back to one of my illustrations uh, that I had at the very end of class uh, about my son Elijah. So Elijah uh, is seven. Uh, he's got two older brothers, but, but um, it, 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 at some point, Let's say for, for, some, for some tragic reason that I'm gone and Julie's gone, so they are all three set to inherit uh, something, Something's way more su- substantial than they have now. W- what they have to their name now is, you know, a brand new pair of tennis shoes and maybe a couple hundred Legos that they've bought themselves. But other than that, pretty much everything that they have is in my possession and is, it is in my ownership, but it'll be given to them eventually but they are not ready uh, to have that. So uh, Paul uses that kind of context as an illustration uh, for how they're seeing uh, the old law and how they're seeing themselves in their lives in Christ. Back in Roman times, there were certain ages where these things came about. If you were um, able, you had a manager, you had a tutor, you had a, a teacher until around the age of 14, then you started to learn on your own until you reached the heir designation age in the, Roman, uh, in the Roman culture of 25. When you got to 25, you had the full privileges of the possessions uh, that, you were going to, that you were going to get. Um, and Paul knows that the people are aware of these things. It's, it was part of their culture. It's a part of our culture. Um, and he reminds them, While we were children, verse 3, we were held in bondage under the elementary things of the world. Times were different. Uh, Times were different back then, and you didn't have the full inheritance. Why, Paul's conclusion in the form of a question, is why would you want to go back to that? Um, If if you go all the way back to uh, verse 9, or go forward, excuse me, to verse 9, Why would you want to go back and be enslaved by those things again? Um, First and only uh, loose illustration of the day. Um, Think back to high school or college reunions. Um, There are are times when we think about how things used to be, Graduation uh, from, these, from these milestones in our life, uh, we transition from a carefree life in which our parents assume the re- most of our responsibilities and we start to consume and, and develop our own responsibilities. That's the theory uh, anyway. Is we, we transition away uh, at, these, at these milestones. And at times when we transition away, we can look back in nostalgia and think those days were better. That's sometimes what high school reunions are designed to do or college reunions are designed to do is to bring you back to a nostalgic place and the conclusion being it was better uh, back then uh, because all of the good uh, is talked about. Um, Similar to uh, all of the nostalgia that that the Israelites had after coming out of the land of Egypt. They remembered... Nostalgically, the good things, the garlic and the leeks and all of the good food, and not remembering uh, everything uh, that was a problem uh, at that moment. Uh, in fact, being slaves, which would be the, the one that would be um, the, the, the most obvious. Um, at this time, uh, they were in bondage until the fullness of time came in verse 4. Verse 4. Um, if you look at, you know, I'm back, I got about like 90 seconds and I'm going to be opening it up for uh, comments here. So the back half of this section, verses uh, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11, talk about uh, slavery to this old situation, but also talk about uh, adoption. Verse, uh, verse 5, so that he might redeem those who were under the law and we might receive the adoption as sons. God chooses us. Uh, in Christ to be a part of His family, um, you know. What if you could choose a family to be adopted by in this world? Uh, what if you could choose whatever family you wanted? Um, now, be careful with this with this, uh, with this uh, imagination scenario, because some of you are related to each other in this. Uh, this audience so don't don't verbalize anything about uh, who you might choose versus another but think about uh, what what the, the, the possibility could be uh, you would choose the best you would choose the prominent um, in, in a lot of cases and in this case God uses the illustration of adoption to say he has brought us in uh, the number one choice that we would make would be, be to be a part of God's kingdom and he has given us the opportunity given us the ability to be to be adopted, to be drawn in to his his kingdom. Um, And we do that without, and this is the driving home point, I think, of Paul's argument that he's made the whole time. You're able to do that without going back to the nostalgic elementary things of high school and middle school. Things like observing days and months and seasons and years and being very picky about what you eat, and being very picky about how you wash your clothes, and making sure that your males are circumcised. You get to go into the adoption of God's kingdom without having to observe all those things. This makes the covenant of Jesus Christ and the faith in Jesus Christ more mature. Um, Being under the law, last point, before I ask for comments and questions, being under the law, Paul's claim, uh, practically, is a less mature state. You think that if I gave you a list of things to do, the Judaizers are giving you a list of things to do, to eat, circumcision, things to observe. It looks more mature because it's a list of actions and functions and repetitive things you have to keep get doing. Paul's claim is, going back to that, is not a sign of maturity. It's a sign of immaturity because it is elemental. It is going backwards and not forwards into faith in Jesus Christ. This is kind of Paul's practical uh, practical section about how he's he's arguing for the gospel of Jesus Christ. All right, I'm right on time. You guys are doing great. Any comments or questions about Uh, The back end, I've got a couple of applications here, but open up to comments and questions uh, first. All right. Oh, Jonathan, right there? You were talking about adoption, uh, about being adopted into Christ. Um, When you're adopted, you're, you're given a choice whether to... To choose choose the family or whether uh, to walk away from the family that's what you're given in life and when you're adopted into Christ you you have more um, more of a stable life than you do when you're um, in the world so basically they shouldn't go back well Basically, they shouldn't go back because of the simple fact
1: that it's better to be in Christ than it is to be out of Christ.
0: Sure, and I think the main, I would add to that, that adoption comes primarily by the parent accepting the child. There's nothing that the child has done. He'd do do these hundred things, and now you will deserve adoption. That's the claim that the Judaizers are making, um, is the point. Let me make a couple of applications, and I'll go around the room uh, one more time. Some differences are important and some differences are dead. That's the last part of, uh, of chapter 3. There's some differences that are important. If you think back to the last chapter, some, some differences between the provisional, the temporary, the old law, and the permanent, the faith in Jesus Christ and walking by the Spirit, which we'll talk about uh, next week. Uh, there's some differences that are important, but some differences that are dead. And the ones that are dead are mentioned at the back half of chapter 3. There's nothing wrong, I don't think, with improving our status in life, improving however you may define it, by improving in career, improving in getting married, improving in the sense of having uh, children and heirs. But as long as we understand that these distinctions, these improvements mean nothing when it comes to our worth in God's eyes. Um, There are advantages. There are distinctions that men have that are different than women. There are distinctions that Jews may have that are different than males. There are differences between slaves, men, and free men. But human distinctions are are nothing when it comes to uh, the value of the person in Jesus Christ. There's a very natural, and you're probably already there in your mind, that there's a very natural application. Uh, differences between us um, is, the, is the raw materials in which prejudice is formed. Right? There are differences in people, and people use those differences to create hierarchies all the time. Uh, you see it in, really terrible examples in our own country's history. Um, Differences allow for uh, prejudice to be arbitrarily formed. Um, And it provides us a basis by which we can say, this is better than that because there's a difference. And that's why I love just kind of pulling out this section and Paul saying, look, you do have differences. I got it. They mean nothing to you. Oh, your baptism into Jesus Christ has done a lot of things for you. One of the things it has done, it has stripped away the, the value of your identification as man, slave, woman, Gentile, and given you a more uh, prominent identity, son of God. Um, and the last one is nostalgia is a lie. Um, Again, think back to the Israelites. Um, they were without food and water, and they obviously remember the food and water that they had in Egypt, uh, but they forgot the harshness of the taskmasters, the harshness of laying and making bricks. Um, we have to be diligent, I think, to watch for, excuse me, for nostalgia as well um, to make sure that we... Uh, We don't think like eventually like the Judaizers did and think it would be so much better uh, if you went back because Paul's claim is if you go back to a law of Moses anyway that is less mature uh, than going forward in your life walking in the spirit in Jesus Christ.
1: Just one small point. I love the
0: fact that in 26 and 27, it links faith and baptism. Sure. And so. No, well, was, well said. I and I, I even like, I'm going to add to your small comment, verse, uh, verse 27, and I like the, the small illustration. If you have been baptized into Christ, you have, been, you have clothed yourself with Christ. Sometimes baptism is in, in uh, Romans 6. It is a burial. It is a representation of washing away from dead to new. In this this situation, it is clothing yourself. What is clothing often identified uh, with? It is your position. It is who you are. It is how you carry yourself. It's part of your identity. Your baptism has has given you an identity, a clothing, uh, to set you apart from where you were, uh, a person adopted by God. Excellent. Anybody else? All right. Chapter (coughs) 4, verses 12 through 20. Chapter 4, verses 12 through 20. I beg of you, brethren, because as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out of your eyes and given them to me. So I have become your enemy by telling you the truth. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but wish to shut you out so that you, so that you will seek them. But it is good always to eagerly sought in a commendable manner, and not only when I am present with you, my children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Um, when I read this, uh, after a, a couple of times, um, I read it sort of as a parenthetical comment, but at I, uh, and I still kind of half uh, make that claim in my brain, uh, so that's how I wrote this uh, wrote some of the comments that I've got here. Um, Paul is speaking to them in letter form, remember um, and he's apparently heard about a rift between him and them. Um, and you know if you think about it, why would there be a rift? Let me open it up to the group there's a there was a good history here. That, that Paul had, and he harkens back to that history. He harkens back to a time when, um, like, he went there, and one of the reasons he was there was because of a bodily illness. You can read, you know, eight or so commentaries and, and try to figure out why or what what is meant here. Something uh, was wrong with Paul. Something was, was a, a, there was an issue with Paul up to the point that, um, or whatever it is, uh, he, he describes kind of what I think is the important part in verse 14. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe. Whatever Paul had, whatever, it, whatever his condition was, it was visible to the point of not being pleasant uh, to look at. It was despising or, or loathing uh, to look at. These, these words um, sometimes are... are and other sections are translated to, to spit at or to spit out. Um, we see, you can even see sometimes in the Middle East conflicts right now, um, if, if you watch certain videos or certain parts of the news, uh, that part of the country, if they see someone who they disagree with walking by or they know their enemies are walking by, that will spit at them. It is disgusting to even have to look at you. Um, Separate discussion, but you can see why, uh, kind of see the, the, the idea um, that that's, that's what Paul would have been seen as, except to the Galatians. Um, they received him. Just whatever he looked like, whatever his treatment was, he was going through, they received him, and he was very grateful for that. But now there's a rift between him and, uh, him and them. Uh, real quickly... Any reasons why there would be a rift? See how much you've been paying attention for the last uh, month or so of classes. Any reason why there'd be a rift between Paul and the Galatian churches? I I wrote down a couple. This is the read Bill's mind portion of the program. Because they're turning back. All right. Right, good. They are being influenced by a distorted gospel. They're listening to something that's different um, and if you think about it, they're, they're actively listening to people who are undermining Paul's apostleship. Uh, they're undermining his message, undermining his ministry. Okay? Right, yeah, you've got people in there who are constantly teaching against. And has Paul been nice to these people uh, in response? Paul has called them fools. Uh, Paul has been amazed at what they've been doing. In chapter t- 4, verse 20, I am perplexed about you. Paul's blunt uh, language uh, is, uh, is not maybe helping the relationship, uh, maybe causing a rift. Um, what is Paul's overall point? You know there's a rift, I know there's a rift, and I'll tell you why there's a rift. Because I've told you the truth. In verse 16, Despite the Judaizers uh, that David and Nate mentioned, there's the reason for the waning kind of relationship between the Galatians and and Paul. Paul persisted on the truth, and they were in some cases denying the truth and listening to those who wanted them to keep the law. In uh, verses 17 and 18, let me read verses 17 and 18 again. They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to do eagerly sought in a commendable manner and not only when I am present, with you. We get a little bit of insight, the way, that, the way that I read this anyway, I'm certainly welcome to comments here. We get a little bit of insight into the motives of the people who are doing the Judaizing, uh, amongst them, they are um, Paul claims anyway. It, their, their motives, it, what, what I wrote down, is similar to the motives of the scribes and the Pharisees uh, in Matthew uh, 23 and 24 and 25. That Paul, excuse me, that, that Jesus is rebuking uh, during his last week before his crucifixion. Um, I wrote down one verse, Matthew chapter 23 and verse 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel about on sea and on land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much the son of hell as yourselves. They are going to great lengths, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, to convert people so that they can control them uh, and make them worse, (laughs) is Jesus' claim. And and I feel like Paul is making a very similar, a similar uh, statement here. Um, they sought to take the Gentile Christians and work very very hard to make them students of the law of Moses, um, and make sure they knew that direct access to God was through the law of Moses, therefore through a mediator of the law of Moses, therefore through them. Um, So, obviously, there's a rift. There's going to be a rift between uh, Paul and and the the, uh, Galatians for this. Um, Couple of quick applications. Uh, Tough love. We've mentioned uh, mentioned tough love before, but Paul is, again, kind of reiterating this is not just roses and rainbows and bunny rabbits. Hey, we've got a a serious problem here. Um, There's a rift between us. We were kind. You were kind to me before. But now there's a now there's a problem, and then secondly, one second, Brian, we are dealing with, we're certainly dealing with sin, we're certainly dealing with salvation. Paul's done that from the from the end of chapter two all the way up to now, you know, applications from Abraham, applications through Scripture, but he does realize. I, I, I see it this way: he's he's preaching to them, he's reasoning with them, and and he's he's talking about these these heavy topics. And I see, this, I see this section as getting personal. Like I'm talking about Abraham. I'm talking about the Old Testament. <sighs> Keith, listen. We got to talk about what's going on here. Brian, Micah, listen to me. This is how we used to relate to each other. We used to be, we used to be one, and, and now we're not. So it's practical applications, scriptural applications. And at this point, he's like, y'all ever remember when I, when I was there um, and how I was horrible? I didn't look great, and I was being treated, and you guys accepted me. Like, he gets really personal uh, for a moment. Stays on message, but gets a little personal, uh, I think. Brian.
1: Just, uh, just wanted to weave together a couple of things that keep jumping out at me. You go all the way back to the end of chapter 3, what you talked about, no more classes, no distinctions, everybody's the same. And then you think about for the Gentile what it would mean to have this elevated status being adopted as sons. If you go back, if you go back under those Judaizers' teachings, one of the things that I think, some maybe some assignment of motive, that brings the class system back. If mm-hmm. the Judaizing teachers can get the Gentiles back under the old law, sure. they are still beneath the Jews. Yeah. You know, you are now just a proselyte. You are not of equal status of us who have been keeping the law this whole time. Yeah. And I think that's and this extra part of it that Paul is saying, like, why would you want to do that? Like, you have been elevated to a joint heir, but by going back to this, like, that's why they've got bad motives for you. And I, that's, that's kind of what I see yeah. when he's saying, is like, they're zealous for you, but they want to exclude you. Yeah, well they said. want to put you back in your spot so that they yeah. can keep their status.
0: Well said. Yeah, well said. And that's why it, it is... Foolishness to his eyes, or in verse 20, it's, it's perplexing. Like, just say it out loud, like Brian did much better than I did. Say it out loud, what, what they're trying to do here. Um, I have motives, but so do they. Yeah, well said, Brian. Anything else about this section here in the middle of chapter four? This is the, I'm gonna hurry you up, uh, portion of the... Okay. Last uh, 11 verses, chapter 24, excuse me, chapter 4, verse 21. Tell me, you who want to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking. For when women are, for these women are two covenants. One proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to this present Jerusalem. For she is in slavery with her children. But but the Jerusalem is is above, is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear! Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than the one who is who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, so it is now also. But what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the, bond, of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. <clears throat> okay, so the reason that I want to go through this section a little more in detail is, up to this point, I feel, I feel hopefully during the class it's, it's it's come across this way, that up to this point, uh, reading through the Book of Galatians, the letter to the Galatians once through, it's been relatively easy to understand. Sometimes you got to go back a couple of times and and pick up on some of the things that he that he read that he mentions. But when I personally get to this section, I'm I'm lost a little bit as to what uh, is happening. Um, so I want to spend a little time talking about what I think Paul's point is, and then the. Danger uh, teaser here: the danger of trying to to interpret the Bible like Paul interprets the Bible. Uh, I'm going to clarify what I just said in a minute, so just hang on, hang on with me, okay? Um, Paul presents a problem first, so give me give me a little bit of time here to kind of dissect, or at least let me reach into my brain as to what I'm uh, what I'm thinking here. Verse 21 presents a problem. If you want the law so much, why do you not listen to it uh, better? Um, they, um, and then verses 22 and 23 basically summarize Genesis chapter 16 through Genesis chapter 21. Quick recap. Sarah, uh, without child, she has a certain mentality. Her and Abram, Abraham together. I'm going to help God because there are no descendants to Abraham. We would hate for God to not be able to fulfill his promises that he made in Genesis chapter 12. So Sarah and Abraham help him out. Um, This is not, and they help him out by bringing uh, their servant, uh, Hagar, and she has a son, Ishmael, through Abraham. This is not the mentality of faith and trust in God. This is the point in the Old Testament. This is the point here uh, by Paul. It doesn't require human effort for God to keep his word. So far, so good. Um, that's pretty clear uh, then and it's pretty clear now. Uh, things don't work out well uh, during that time. Sarah becomes jealous. Abraham finds himself in a bit of a mess. And Ishmael and Hagar have to be sent away um, from, at that time. Um, look at verses 24 through, through 27 or so. Um, Paul makes a comparison. He gives a an, an allegory, uh, and an allegory is is what. And, uh, this this word um, has different has different translations, but it is a way of thinking about a story, um, and assuming that that story has a a, a secondary meaning. All right? Think about parables. Okay. So there's there's a There's a thought in the word allegory that the story doesn't just sit on its own. It has a second meaning that Paul draws out here. So the story, Paul's claim, is the story of Hagar and Sarah has a second meaning that's tied to the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant. And he distinguishes who's who. Hagar is the Mosaic covenant, the covenant, verse 24, that came from Mount Sinai. Um, the the law keeping Sarah and her son Isaac are the represent the covenant of of uh, God through through free men through God of the promise um, and then cites um, Isaiah chapter fifty four um, which is a connection to Jerusalem again to kind of the promises from from God um, the so if there's a distinction here. Paul, in my mind, Paul is trying to, to, to draw a conclusion based on the, the story of Sarah and Hagar. Those who live by faith, and it's the, same, it's the same story, it's the same message that Paul has had throughout the book of Galatians. Those who live by faith are heirs of Abraham, not those who live by the law or the law-keeping. Paul is is making, to me, a a couple of points. First, the Judaizers were sons of Abraham, true, but they were not sons of Sarah. You can be a son of Abraham as a Judaizer, but that doesn't make you a son of Sarah because you are trying to go outside of the law. Excuse me. you're You're trying to go outside of the law of promise, God's promise, which is from Sarah, and you're trying to go about it a different way. So the Judaizers are teaching the Jewish law, yes, from Abraham, from Abraham, not from Sarah, from a different different standpoint. Um, The Judaizers are persecuting the Gentile Christians by insisting that keeping the Old Testament law is a priority. And as a result, Paul says, like Sarah says to Hagar, we have to throw out these Judaizers because they are not compatible with the salvation and by faith. Paul is saying, just like Sarah had to throw Hagar out, Paul is saying, you need to throw these Judaizers out, because they're not coming at this from, the gods, from god's promise. They're coming at it from, from God's old law. Oh, man. All right, we'll pick this up uh, in, in next week, too. Let me Let me, let me try to... Let me try to take take through. So I feel like that's Paul's point uh, here uh, and and how he describes this. Um, This leaves open a question I'm going to start answering now. we will answer it next next week as well. Is Paul's way of interpreting the Old Testament here the same way that we should interpret the Old Testament? Meaning, Paul takes a, a, a story out of the Bible, And and draws out the hidden meaning of it. So therefore, we should take every story and every passage. I'm going to speak in hyperbole a little bit to hopefully get my point across. So where we should take Paul's, should we take Paul's apostolic example here and take every single story that we ever see in the Old Testament and try to not only read it literally, but also try to find the hidden meaning uh, in it. Um, Is that what Paul is trying to teach us to do here? Hopefully, I got a few shakes of the heads like this, so I'm I'm aligned with the uh, shake your head, uh, shake your head like this um, mindset. There's there's multiple multiple things we could say about that. Is there is there allegory or is there illustrative type interpretation that we have to make in the Bible? Absolutely, it's everywhere. Think about Jesus. Just a couple of quick examples: Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount. He doesn't literally mean that we need to pluck out our eyes or cut off our hands if we want to be members of the kingdom of heaven. He, when he talks about in the, in the institution of the Lord's Supper, he uses an illustration. This is my body. This is my blood. So the Lord's Supper is a, is a representation, is an illustration of us uniting with him in his death and remembering his death week in and week out. Paul uses illustration uh, the parables of Jesus Christ are illustrations, but there is a difference between using illustrations and trying to make every single thing that literally happens into a, something that has a hidden meaning. Um, there's obvious trouble that happens with that, right? You have to get creative uh, sometimes. It has to become very subjective, and that's how you find Saddam Hussein and Hitler and COVID in the Bible, isn't it? Because you find ways to, well, yeah, that's really what happened here, but what does Paul, excuse me, what does God really mean when he's saying, uh, saying this or, or saying that? Now, why is Paul able to do it? Maybe an easy question. What does Paul have that we don't have? Paul is a bit more inspired in the thing that he's just saying than, than, our, than our interpretation would be, right? So Paul really in this very, very isolated case by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is using an allegory, is using an illustration to drive home a point that he's made over and over and over again. Um, This is not liberty to take uh, literal stories in the Bible and try to find the hidden meaning uh, in all of them. Uh, So I'm going to talk about something very quickly and then we'll We'll start, here, we'll start here next time. I feel like, again, part of the book of Galatians is, is finding principles in this book that don't just apply to those being Judaized, but also apply to us. Um, I'm going to put this up on the board, and then we'll talk about it next time. Interpret the Bible literally and apply it by analogy. Um, interpret the passage literally. There are multiple times in this book where we are to interpret what God is saying through Paul literally. The Bible is regularly written, literally, with a single meaning. That's its regular form. There are very few cases like this where Paul tries to draw out a, a double meaning. So we take the Bible literally, determine the principles that that interpretation reveals, and then find ways that those principles in wisdom apply to our own lives. You know, if you think about the story of, I'm going to take one real quick illustration I'm going to talk about now, then I'll talk about 168 hours from now. Is interpret, if you look at the story of Joseph, you know, we were never son of Jacob. We were never sold into Egyptian slavery. We were never wrongly accused or imprisoned like Joseph was. But we can read that story literally as something that actually happened, find lessons or principles around Joseph's attitude towards it, his actions towards it and then find situations in our lives about how to directly apply that, right? That's the way to interpret the story of Joseph. It's not to say, well, what did the, what did the coat of really, many colors really mean? You know, did it really mean uh, something else? Or why, why did, was, Potter's wife symbolize something else in the 1990s? No, that's not the point. That's not the point. Look at the Bible, interpret it as a literal thing, find the principles that apply to us, and apply those in wisdom. I didn't leave any time for you to rebut or or commentate on that. So if you'll hold your thoughts for 167 hours, uh, we'll get back to it uh, next week. Thank you.